Suppose now my zeal in sticking it to the Mormons needs to go up a notch. So it is, uh, it is good to be with you all this evening, and um, I'll save most of what I want to say about uh, myself, all saints, for tomorrow, lest I repeat myself. But I am ministering in St. George, Utah, Southwest Utah, and we are, uh, as a church, incredibly grateful for your support and your encouragement But again, more on that tomorrow. This evening, I'll be bringing from the Word from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Certainly a portion of the Word of the Lord that lends itself very easily to the proclamation of the Gospel. So before I read from those verses, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, as it bears witness about your Son, and as you bring it home into our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. And so as we have opportunity now to turn to your word, perfect as it is, beautiful as it is, we ask that you would open our minds to understand and our hearts to receive. We know that without your work within us, this is nothing more than noise, but we know that you promise to be with your people when they gather, and so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your inspired and inerrant word this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first seven verses. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth." came of age, at least theologically speaking, during the the movement that became known as the Young, Restless, and Reformed Movement. And uh, whatever you think of its merits or demerits or its leaders, no one can deny that it had a significant impact upon the, the face, not only of evangelicalism broadly, but of Reformed evangelicalism more specifically. Young, restless, and reformed, as I look back upon who I was and then look at who I am now, I think that I'm not nearly so restless as I was. I'm still reformed by the grace of God, and I still think oftentimes that I am young. But I'm not nearly so young as I often, remi- as I often think that I am. When I, looked at, when I look at my children... I think I am getting older because older people have children who are in double digits, not young people. And if I need another reminder, I tried to dunk a basketball for the first time in about 10 years, a couple weeks ago, and I failed. 
That has not happened for quite some time either. But as well, if I need a, a very quick reminder, I just need to bend down to pick up one of my children and listen to the four-part harmony of clicks, clacks, and pops that come out of my knees and my ankles. I'm not quite so young, neither is the movement, neither is the young, restless, and reformed movement. Now, many of us who came of age theologically in that day find ourselves in positions of influence in the church. Some, like myself, in full-time vocational ministry, but many, many more now in capacities of leadership in local congregations as members of those congregations and continue to have an effect Particularly, I think, the movement continues to have an effect on the mission of the church. And one of the leading lights before, during, and after the movement was a well-known name, I expect, for most of you, his brother, John Piper. John Piper brought back to the forefront of the evangelical mind, at least in our own nation, the, the embrace of the supremacy of God over all things. Now, he was not original, this thought of the supremacy of God over all things. is not original to himself. He wouldn't certainly claim it to be, but it was proclaimed by the apostles and embraced by the church. The Reformation was all about the supremacy of God over all things. And as well, Piper is himself building upon the tradition of the Reformers and Reformed and Presbyterians. And so it's not original to himself, but nevertheless... Piper, himself a Baptist, everyone has their flaws, brought back to the forefront of the consciousness and the conscience of the modern church in our own day, the centrality of worship in the life of the Christian. He wrote a very well-known mission book titled, The Let the Nations Be Glad. And the premise of the book was very simple. The premise is that Missions exist because worship does not. That is, that worship is paramount. Missions builds towards worship. And I think that is at the heart of our passage for this evening and really at the heart of Paul's first letter to his protege, Timothy. One of the dangers of parachuting into the middle of any portion of the Word of God, and particularly maybe into an epistle, is that it can be easy to, to miss the context of what is being said. And so we're jumping into the second chapter of the letter, and it's good for us to be able to know at least a kind of a, a rough sketch of what is in the first chapter of what Paul says to Timothy, so that we can better understand. Let me read just a, a few verses from the first chapter. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we see in those verses, we see mission. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
And the salvation of Paul was as a demonstration of the patience of Jesus Christ towards those who would be saved and have eternal life. But where does he end? Mission comes and mission comes, but where does he end? He ends in worship. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Missions is not where it ends. Missions ends, but worship continues. And so that brings us then into the passage for this evening, and we'll start here in the first verse. Paul says again, Therefore I exhort, first, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now I would like to ask for the benefit of the doubt in one sense, and that is that I would like for you to simply trust me as I pass over certain things. You can trust my Orthodoxy, my reformed credentials. I'm not going to digress into uh, polemics on universalism or Arminianism or limited atonement or any of those things. Those, those are all good things to talk about and certainly can be spoken of from this, from this chapter. But I want, to, I want you to trust me that I am in fact reformed. Trust your mission committee that they would not support me if I was not. And because I want to focus on other things, primarily of course I want to focus on missions. And the first place that Paul goes when he's speaking to Timothy about this is he goes to prayer. And he encourages giving of four kinds of prayer. Now each of these words has some kind of semantic overlap. If there was a Venn diagram, the circles would have overlap. But they each have their own particular nuance as well. So the first of these kinds of prayers that he uh, exhorts the Ephesian Christians through Timothy to pray is the prayer of supplication. This prayer is more of a specific prayer. It's not so much, Lord, please bless Bob, as it is, Lord, please, please heal Bob's relationship with his son and give him a steady job. That is, that it has in mind a specific need and the Lord's Fulfillment of that need, satisfaction of that need, is what is prayed for. Then, secondly, you have, more generally, prayers. These are things that can be offered all the time. These are things like what Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. We, we need our daily bread day by day by day. And so does everybody else. It is always okay to pray for somebody. Give them their daily bread or lead them not into temptation. These are, these are general prayers. But the next one is intercessions. And this is to pray on someone's behalf. Intercession is the category that would best fit our prayers for the conversion of others. When we plead with the Lord to save our children, to convert our siblings, or change the hearts of our parents, our neighbors, or people around the world, we are interceding for them, pleading on their behalf that God would have mercy on them as he has had mercy upon us. And the last thing, and the most distinct of the four, is thanksgivings. Wherever we see goodness... Wherever we see God's grace, particularly in and among his image bearers, we ought to give thanks. Because all goodness comes from God, who is himself the fount of all good things. And so these four kinds of prayers, Paul instructs us, and he instructs us to pray them very specifically for all men, for all people. Now, 
could hardly be possible that Paul would instruct Timothy to tell the Ephesians and through them to tell us as well that we are to pray by name for every single person that we know. Particularly in the internet age, we would never see, so we wouldn't even get through those names in, in any given week. That's not what he has in mind. He simply has in mind that we are to pray for all people regardless of their station in life, regardless even of our relationship to them. It does not need to be that we are best friends with them. It does not even need to be that we are friends with them at all. We are to pray for all people regardless of who they are, what their relationship may be to us. In fact, this includes even praying for our enemies. John Chrysostom, early church leader, is named the Golden Mouth because he was renowned for his preaching. He said, it is very hard to hate those for whom you pray. And so we are called to pray for all people. But then Paul breaks that down and gives one specific category of people, of persons that we need to pray for in verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Here he turns to something that may have been a bit difficult for Timothy and for his parishioners. They lived in the time of Nero. Nero is well known for his barbarous nature. For his heinousness, those words don't go far enough to describe who Nero was. And he as well is known for his persecution of the church. He made himself an enemy of Christ in nearly every way that he could. But Paul says that we are to pray even for kings, even for the Neros. You have to imagine this must have been a hard pill to swallow. John Calvin comments on this, and this is what he says, All the magistrates who existed at that time were sworn enemies of Christ. And therefore this thought might occur to them, that they ought not to pray for those who devoted all their power and all their wealth to fight against the kingdom of Christ. That thought might have occurred to them, but it would have been a wrong thought. But they were to pray for these people. That ought to be a good reminder for us as well. As those who are Bible-believing Christians, who hold to the traditional Christian faith and all that it entails, as we find ourselves less represented in the halls of government, as we find the the government with less interest in justice and in the, the benefit of the church, yet even still we are to pray for those who are in positions of authority, whether or not we like them. And very often, and I think increasingly so, we do not and we will not, but still we pray for them. We pray for them for a purpose. And Paul gives that purpose. That is, we pray for them towards the end of peace, that the church may be peaceful, that it may have godliness, and by implication that it may have prosperity. There's a well-known maxim, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it is true. It certainly has been proved to be true time and time again throughout the history of the church. But it is also true that the peace of a nation lends itself to the prosperity of the church. 
And this as well has been shown time and time again. And when peace is gone, the church often suffers. This just one example from church history. In the year 1685, King Louis XIV of France revoked the Edict of Nantes. Edict of Nantes had been signed nearly 100 years earlier by a French king, and the edict, in short, gave French Protestants, almost to a man, Calvinist, gave French Protestants, French Huguenots, the freedom to, uh, to worship as they pleased, according to their own consciences. Though the government was officially Roman Catholic, though the king was Roman Catholic, they allowed, for that period of about 90 years, they allowed Huguenot, French Protestants, to worship according to their consciences. But then that permission was revoked, and when that permission was revoked, the French church was persecuted viciously. They were slaughtered, hunted, imprisoned, and tortured. Those that maintained their faith and avoided those things would worship in caves or in forests, abandoned quarries or other secret places, always knowing that this trip to the cave, this trip to the quarry, may very well be their last. And the chief of the targets of the French clergy, Catholic clergy and the French military, they worked hand in hand, oftentimes the parish priest being sort of a spy to, d to deliver over his religious enemies to Caesar to be killed. One of the, one of the, the chief targets was pastors. If you were a Protestant pastor and you were arrested, you were without exception hung, oftentimes after being tortured. And as the pastors were forced to flee into exile or were killed, there became a vacuum, a vacuum of education and of structure. And into that vacuum came very rapidly charismatic fanaticism. The people who led the church were no longer those who were educated, no longer those who knew how to preach the gospel. It was the most eccentric. Whoever had the widest eyes, whoever shouted the loudest, whoever had the most, uh, the most persuasive visions or claims of visions, these were the men who became leaders in the church. In the absence of peace, the church suffered great harm. And it did for quite some time until the valiant efforts of some men came to re-educate clergy, to establish synods and so on. That's a story for another day. The lack of peace in the church harmed the church's witness, harmed its ability to proclaim the gospel publicly, and harmed its purity. There are certainly benefits to the church when persecution arrives, but there are undoubtedly costs as well. Paul instructs us to pray that there will be peace, that we will be able to demonstrate our transformed lives, our lives of godliness, with an open proclamation of the gospel. George Knight said it rather plainly, a tranquil life is to be prayed for as a setting in which the ultimate goal may be accomplished. And the ultimate goal is the proclamation of the gospel to the nations leading towards worship of a holy God. And that Paul was wise, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know that he was wise, but as Paul was wise, this has been demonstrated throughout time, that peace, times like the Pax Romana, 
The church exploded in growth, and its influence grew incredibly over a period of 150 years or so. When peace has existed, the church has often flourished. So we pray. You might say, well, we've come through verses 1 and 2 in quite a few minutes, and we've not actually gotten to the gospel yet, and we've not actually touched on missions yet, but I would say that though in some sense you may be right, you would be wrong in this sense that Paul sees prayer as a vital part of mission, and that we start mission in prayer. We pray not only for the proclamation of the gospel, but we pray as well for the right setting for the proclamation of the gospel, that soil may be receptive. But nevertheless, we move on then into verses 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is God's love for the world as famously stated in John 3.16, that fuels our own heart for mission. It is Christ's desire for the nations to be discipled that, that turns our engines, so to speak, for our desire to see disciples made throughout the nations as well. Jesus commands us to teach. He commands us to share the truth. Notice that it is the truth that Paul speaks of. He instructs us to share the truth, to teach the truth. And because Jesus' heart is for the nations... By implication, our heart ought to be for the nations as well. The question we often ought to ask ourselves is, does my heart, do our hearts match God's heart? Do we desire what God desires? Do we crave to see what God desires come to be? God is the Savior. God desires salvation for His people. He is the cause of salvation. Do we desire... Do our desires match the desires of God? Or perhaps is it that our hearts have grown cold? I didn't grow up with the tradition of missions conferences. It wasn't until I was in the seminary that I had any familiarity or was introduced to the idea. But what a great opportunity to year after year to have our hearts for mission rekindled afresh. To remind it again intentionally to be reminded again and again of the centrality of mission towards the end of worship in the life of the church. We, we ought to be pitied if our hearts have grown cold or perhaps if this desire is absent entirely. Richard Baxter, English Puritan, I think put it rather bluntly. He said, let your heart yearn for your ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them, and if they die unregenerate, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care who is damned as long as you are saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves. For it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. If their houses were on fire, you would run and help them. Will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? To expand perhaps on that, will you not desire for them to be saved as God desires for sinners to be saved? If God was willing to take on flesh to save us, if he was willing to move towards us with the offer of the gospel, 
Shouldn't we also be not just willing, but perhaps even eager to move towards those who are in need of the same Savior as we are with the gospel as well? If Christ would come to us, should we not also be eager to go to our neighbors who are desperately in need of him? And we should pray towards this end. For this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. We are always safe when we pray for the things that God wants. We are always safe when we pray according to the word of the Lord. And so we offer prayer towards this end. Moving forward then into verse 5 and verse 6, we see that verse 5 gives a sort of statement and verse 6 gives an explanation, but we'll start with verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Verse 5 is a sort of uh, linking verse. It looks back and then it moves forward as well. And it looks back to the first four verses and it uses the word for. Why pray for all kinds of people? Why pray for Jew and Gentile? Why pray for slave and free? Or why pray for kings? And the reason is very simple is that there is only one God. There is not one God for kings and another one for subjects or for men and a different one for women. Or certainly, as Paul really emphasizes, there is not one God for Jews and another God for Gentiles. But there is one God, and that one God is the God who brings salvation to all people. Are you a Jew and you are saved? It is the same God who saved you by the same means, that of faith, as if you are a Gentile who was saved. And so there is one God, and this one God offers one salvation through one Christ. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul writes, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, it is one God who justifies the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. There's one God, one mediator, as we see. There is only one God who saves. I hope, that, I hope that the belief in one God is, the wonder of it is not lost on you. Really, monotheism is in the minority of religions, certainly across history that is true. Monotheism in its uh, Christian and Islamic forms has grown to be dominant across the world, but it was not always so, and and it will not always be so, I suppose. Paul ministered in a predominantly pagan world. He preached the gospel of one God to people who believed in perhaps an infinite number of gods. Now, I minister in a predominantly Mormon context. About 70% of St. George claims to belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They would call themselves LDS. And so being relatively new on the mission field, people, you move in, and what do they ask you? They ask you, well, why are you here? They say, well, this is a great question. Thank you for asking. I'm here to plant a church. Now, how do you, how do you expect that my LDS neighbors will respond to someone saying, I've come here to preach an orthodox, to, to plant an Orthodox Reformed and Evangelical church? Surprisingly, most of them have said, great, us Christians need to stick together. (laughs) 
But that's absurd. It's absurd. Now, I, I trust, I, I believe that they genuinely mean what they say. Not always, but genuinely, I think most of them mean what they say. When they say, great, we need to stick together, they mean, great, we need to stick together. Now, they know that there's a difference between the two, but they think, and they genuinely think, many of them, that the, the umbrella term Christian is broad enough to cover both what they believe and what we believe. But that's absurd, because central to the Christian faith is that there is one God. And that is not central to the Mormon faith. Central to our faith, very, very simply again, Children's Catechism says that God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. But in fact, God of Mormonism is a man who has a body just like us. Take this, this is from Joseph Smith. You're likely familiar with Joseph Smith, the first prophet of the LDS, the Mormon church. His last sermon that he preached was at a funeral for one of his friends. It's called the King Follett Discourse. And it's in a sense been canonized by the Mormon church. And this is just part of what he said. God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. If the veil were rent today, and the great God who holds this world in its orbit, and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power, was to make himself visible, I say, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form, like yourselves, in all the person, image, and very form as a man." He came to be so. For I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. We have imagined and supposed that God was from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see. If you do not believe it, you do not believe the Bible. That is not the Christian God. Not the Christian God at all. I do not want a man like me as God. Is there anybody here? I know we're Presbyterians and we don't ask for participation, but you're not actually going to participate anyways. Is there anybody here who would like to have a man as their God? This is not our God. No, in fact, the, the, the God of the Bible says through the pen of the prophet Isaiah, Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. There is no Savior and there is no salvation outside of one God. And any deviation from that leaves one outside of salvation. J.I. Packer said that if you, were to, if you wanted to find the most crystallized form of the truth of the Scripture, you could boil it down and you could find it in verses 5 and 6. Because at the foundation of the Christian faith is that there is one God who is the Savior. So verse 5 looks back. Verse 6 looks forward. Mentions that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But it isn't until verse 6 that we see what qualifies him to be the mediator between God and man. 
So verse 6, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now a mediator is someone who stands between two parties that are at odds with one another. A marriage counselor functions as a sort of mediator between a husband and a wife that are at odds in some capacity. It may be that neutral nations will seek to barter peace as mediators between two or more warring nations. Mediators stand in the middle. Author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And in this particular instance, Jesus has voluntarily, has willingly placed himself in the middle position between God, who is the offended party, and man, who is the offender. Jesus is uniquely qualified for this, to stand before God in his divine nature, stand on our behalf in his perfect human nature. The author of Hebrews deals with both in chapters 1 and 2, but here Paul really focuses on the latter, on the human nature of Christ as the one who pleads our case before the Creator. But what case does he plead for us? Our standing with God is a rather unusual standing. There is one ultimately offended party, and there is one offending party, and there is no nuance whatsoever. This as well sets an impenetrable dividing line between Christianity and Islam or Mormonism or any other man-made religion. Because it is only the Christian faith that sees oneself as utterly hopeless in and of oneself. It is only the Christian faith that we look at ourselves and we see nothing worthy of focusing on because we see no hope in there. We look entirely outside of ourselves for hope. So what do we do? What does Christ do when he pleads our case? On what grounds could he, could he plead our case? The Lord is very plain with our first father Adam in the garden. One sin and you're going to die and you're kicked out of my presence. That was very simple. Adam did it, and he was, and he was. We walked very perfectly in his sinful steps. So on what grounds? Well, a lawyer can try to make plea deals. There can be some kind of a plea bargain, and sometimes the lawyer will make a, a bargain and say, well, this, is what, this was a first offense. Or, or maybe this was, a, this was a crime out of character. Or maybe the likelihood of recidivism is quite low. See, but none of those work for us either. This is far more than our first offense. Sin is in our very nature, and our recidivism rate is at a solid 100%. So what does Christ plead for us? He pleads simply that the punishment that is fit for the crime has already been dealt. That the judgment that is due has already been given. That the case is already closed. That it is a matter of record and does not need to be dealt with again. The sentence, very plainly, was death and hell. Christ, our mediator, endured both. And in doing so, removed the curse from us. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism says, 
Why did Christ have to go all the way to death? Because God's justice and truth demand it. Only the death of God's Son could pay for our sin. In Christ, God has satisfied God's own justice. In Christ, the offended pays the penalty of the sin of the offender. And what effect does this ransom have for us? Again, from the Heidelberg Catechism. Why does the creed, that is the Apostles' Creed, why does the creed add, he descended into hell? To assure me in times of personal crisis and temptation, the Christ, my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, especially on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. Now that is the greatest news ever spoken. That is the greatest message that has ever been announced or which can ever be preached. That now there is peace between God and man. And even more than that, now there is adoption between God who is the father of those, his children, united to Christ by faith. This is the greatest news. We are now friends, children of God. John Calvin again spoke of this with great affection. If we call to our minds that exalted and unapproachable majesty of God, that we may not be driven back by the dread of it, Let us at the same time remember the man Christ who gently invites us and takes us, as it were, by the hand in order that the Father, who had been the object of terror and alarm, may be reconciled by him and rendered friendly to us. This is the only key to open for us the gate of the heavenly kingdom, that we may appear in the presence of God with confidence. Our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, in effect, holds out a hand to us, takes our hand, and walks us with confidence into the throne room of the Almighty. And he does this for king and subject, for Jew and for Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, whatever distinction you may want to draw. He does this for all people on one condition, the same condition for all people, that of faith resting entirely on Christ. And Christ will continue to do that. He will continue to make peace. He will continue to save sinners until every last one of them that God desires to save is saved until every last voice that will worship has been joined in worship. And then missions ends. And only worship endures. 
Missions has as its end worship. Verse 7, Paul speaks of his, his own role in this. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now let me make make it abundantly clear that there cannot be a one-to-one correspondence between what Paul says here and any of us. If Paul is an apostle, we are not. We receive revelation by his pen in written form. We do not receive it from God himself in the same way that he received it. But even still, that being said, and that qualification being made, we are in possession of the same message of the gospel that Paul was in possession of. And the same gospel that Timothy, a pastor, himself not an apostle, the same gospel that he was charged to preach, we have hold of. And as we have hold of that same gospel, we have the privilege and the responsibility to proclaim it up here, proclaim it around the world, in our homes, on our blocks, in our communities, and wherever it may be, we have opportunity to proclaim the message of Christ. And a beautiful message it is. A public public one, not revealed in a cave, like the messages of the false religions of Islam or Mormonism, not privately revealed, but publicly a Christ crucified and raised, not loaded with unbearable burdens, But a Savior says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A message not of labors, but of God's love. A freedom, no longer slavery to self. A message, I believe, worth a lifetime of mission. Seeking to bring glory to God by bringing more people to join their voices with the saints who've gone before and with us now. And that is a work, praise God, that can happen anywhere. It can happen here. In Utah, Hungary, Indonesia, wherever else. The Lord has disciples in all the nations. He calls us to preach the gospel in all the nations to the purpose of worship. So that as Paul says, it may be to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that you are the true God, the only God, that there is one mediator, that there is one truth, one gospel, and we thank you that you have given it to us. First and foremost, you have given it to us that we may be saved. We thank you for this, and we thank you that you have put it in our hearts and that we can take it into our mouths as well. We pray that you would give us boldness, whatever capacity you would have us to be able to share this 
gospel, whether it be in our homes, with our children, in our neighborhood, or across the globe, wherever it is, Lord, give us boldness in preaching Christ and him crucified. And then we know that our preaching is without, is without gain if you do not use it. So we pray that you would. We pray that you would save sinners and you would do so through our work, through the mission of this church and others like it. Lord, that you would be worshipped and glorified now and forever as well. Amen.